As often happens with transitions to the silver screen, the stage and film versions of Little Shop of Horrors are far from the same. The entire ending issue aside, the film cuts and streamlines several songs and moments in the story, and some characters have been drastically reduced. From the very first draft of the screenplay, these changes were more or less already in place, only straying back to the libretto in one instance. I'm Joss Hoskinson, and this is Off the Cutting Room Floor. Episode 7, The Second Screenplay Draft. swirls of threatening, ever-changing storm sky color. A chilling Phantom of the Opera organ chord. A voice not unlike God's, or Orson Welles, intones with the following prologue. Simultaneously, the word scrolls slowly across the screen. On the 23rd day of the month of September. In the 1986 film, the most obvious changes from the musical are to the score. With the film dropping close for renovation, Mushnik and Son, Sudden Changes, Callback in the Morning, and Salmonex, condensing the meek shall inherit, and replacing You Never Know with Some Fun Now. And from Howard Ashman's very first outline for the film, dated November 1982, these cuts had already taken place. The only real exception is the meek shall inherit, which is completely absent in the outline and first draft. Once Frank Oz came onto the project and contributed a, what I estimate to be, third draft of the screenplay, The Meek Shall Inherit was included after being restored to the second draft dated August 1984. The second draft also featured a few other things. After Somewhere That's Green, which begins in the shop and ends with Audrey leaving to walk across the street to her apartment, we dissolved the shop two weeks later on a Saturday morning. Chirpy, calliope-flavored, whistle-while-you-work-style music begins as a tiny Acme construction van pulls into Skid Row and stops in front of Mushnicks. The door opens, and out hops a workman. Then another, then another, and another. It's like the little car in the circus, an impossible number of workmen pouring out of the tiny little van with ladders, pails, and equipment. They converge upon Mushnicks, and Seymour meets them at the door. And thus begins closed for innovation. As Seymour helps the workers, Mushnik's Skid Row Flora Shop is transformed into the ultimate in tacky flora shop chic. Floral wallpaper is put up, refrigerated displays with kitschy pseudo-antique trimmings are being installed, and every natural surface is being replaced with something shiny and synthetic. Audrey, wearing an impossibly frilly apron, moves amongst the workmen, serving them coffee, donuts, and lunch, and dancing around the crew like Snow White in Dwarf Heaven. All the while, Mushnik revels in playing the head honcho, gleefully running the whole affair. As the song comes to a close, the flower shop employees are left standing around a large, bulky object, covered in white draped cloth. When the song reaches its climax, the three grab the cloth and whisk it off, revealing a four-foot-tall Audrey II planted inside a large pot. Later on, in a scene that mirrors the musical, Orin urges Seymour to leave Mushnik for a larger flower shop, which Seymour politely agrees to, if only to make him leave. Mushnik, in the shop counting the day's receipts, overhears. Once Audrey and her date leave, and as Seymour laments to Audrey too, Orin's treatment of its namesake, Mushnik stumbles into the storeroom as he sings. He'll think about it. He'll think about it. I don't like that guy, Dewey. And you should hear the way he talks to Audrey. 
forgotten him will know the kid just said he'd mull it over. Mushnik and Son continues on much like it does in the musical, with Mushnik offering to adopt Seymour like a demented refugee from Fiddler on the Roof, and Seymour looking on in shock and confusion until finally relenting to the idea and accepting the proposal. Once Mushnik exits and storm clouds roll into Skid Row, the music turns sweet as we get yet another cut song. Sudden changes surround me. Lady Luck came and found me. Thanks a million for making the magic you do. As the scene continues, again as it does in the musical, there's the sound of thunder, of rain. And, combined with the gentle underscoring and the intimacy of the moment, the mood turns quietly cozy as we get into <laughs> Later on, Seymour is sitting in Orin's dentist's chair, as the demented dentist puts on his special gas mask. Seymour looks down at the briefcase in his lap, containing the pistol he's brought to perform his terrible deed, and looks directly into the camera, and, under his breath, sings, Now, do it now! While he's gassing himself to a palpable stupor, the timing's ideal and the moment is super to ready and fire and blow the sick bastard away! Now it's just the gas continues as it does in the musical, with Orin delivering his lines to Seymour, and Seymour singing as asides directly to the audience. Immediately following Mushnik's death, we transition directly to the Michelle and Herod, with Bernstein, a trench-coated, sunglass-sporting television executive, entering the shop and presenting Seymour with a contract for a TV show on NBC right after Omnibus, Sundays at 4. As Seymour looks over the contract, we transition to a checker cab, where Chris, Renette, and Chiffon sing the song's first chorus, that's driving Seymour to the headquarters of Time Life, Inc., for his appointment with Henry Luce. Though the editor is out, the former actress and playwright, his wife, Claire Booth Luce, meets with him instead, in all her Angela Lansbury-esque glory, ushering him into her office. It's like something out of Funny Face, the ultimate pink Technicolor 50s office. She presents Seymour with a mock-up of the December cover of Life magazine, featuring him and Audrey too, and with yet another contract. As Seymour passes through a typing pool as he exits, we see Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon sitting amongst the women, singing the second chorus and typing in time with the music. Seymour exits the building and he's surrounded by three well-dressed men, and pulled into an impossibly long black limousine, where a fourth well-dressed man waits. Giving off the air that the group are a team of gangsters, the fourth man produces a business card and presents it to Seymour, revealing that he skips snip from the William Morris Agency. The agent offers to book Seymour on lecturing tours all over the country, before presenting Seymour with yet another contract. Seymour's eyes glaze over in confusion as his subconscious begins his soliloquy. We cut to Skid Row at night, where Seymour wanders dramatically through the lonely street, tortured, before we cut to him in bed, restless, tossing and turning. Deciding he's had enough and that it all has to end, he climbs up the stairs to the shop, opens the door, and looks at the plant, immobile and lifeless, but huge. Seymour sings the, the vegetable must be destroyed before his face softens and he wanders over to Audrey's work table and, lovesick and forlorn, with tears in his eyes, lovingly touches her smock hanging nearby while wondering if she'd love him if, if life were tawdry and impoverished as before. Knowing what he must do, he resigns himself to his fate and, as we dissolve to the offices of Bernstein and Luce and back to the limo of Snip, Seymour signs every contract as Chris Rolana and Chiffon sing the final verse and voiceover. When Seymour exits the office building of Time Life Inc., several photographers and teenage fans recognize him, resulting in a mob forming around him. As he disappears into the crowd, the urchins look on in smug satisfaction as they sing the final line. 
The ending is also rather interesting. Seymour makes a final grand stand against the plant, much like he does in the first draft and the leaked February 14th, 1985 draft of the screenplay. Go ahead. Laugh. Laugh if you want. But you can't win. You won't win. Your kind never does. Maybe it's too late for her. Maybe for me. But the others? It's not too late for them. I'll warn them. I'll tell them you're coming. And the human race won't take this lion down. And wherever you grow, whatever you try, we'll be waiting for you. Is you quite finished? Having had enough, the plant wraps Seymour up in its vines and slowly pulls him towards its open, monstrous maw. But, before it can devour Seymour, Audrey 2 hears the approach of Patrick Martin and quickly throws Seymour behind a counter, knocking him out. During the final montage showing the marketing craze of Audrey 2, we see that Seymour survived the attack and, now disheveled and crazed, he's taken on the role of a mad prophet, knocking down shop displays of Audrey 2's and trying to stop a waitress from feeding a thriving plant on display in her establishment. At the very end, Seymour leads the final stand. However, all his efforts are for naught, and the final shot is a close-up on him, clinging to a lamppost as the world is eaten around him his face full of the knowledge of what he and God have wrought. Interestingly, though the adoption plot point was included in this draft, the idea isn't brought up at all during supper time or Mushnik's death. Callback in the Morning, Samanex, and You Never Know are still absent and would never be introduced into any known draft of the screenplay. This has been Off the Cutting Room Floor. The voice of Howard Ashman was Davis, host of the Jacks of Trades podcast. Follow Jacks of Trades on Twitter at Jacks Trades Pod. The voice of Seymour was Ryan, host of the Rumor Flies podcast. The voice of Audrey 2 was Josh, also from Rumor Flies. Follow Rumor Flies on Twitter at Rumor Flies. Special thanks to Greg, founder of In-Depth Media and producer of Jacks of Trades and Rumor Flies. Find out more about In-Depth Media at filmindepth.com. The clip of Mushnik and Sun comes from the 2009 Stage Stars backing track release. Clips from Sun Changes and Now It's Just the Gas come from the 1982 and 2019 off-Broadway cast recordings, respectively. Opening and closing theme, Always Slept So Soundly, is by Sarah's off the EP Domestications. They can be found at soundcloud.com slash and on Twitter at Music. Got corrections? Want to get in touch? Shoot me a message at Joss Hosky on Twitter, the show at OTCR Room Pod everywhere, or send an email to cuttingroompod at gmail.com. Want to support the show and what I do? Become a patron at patreon.com slash Hosky or leave a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Sources for this episode can be found in the show notes. To find transcripts and any corrections, visit cuttingroompod.tumblr.com. Chirpy Calliope flavored. Fuck you. I heard you try. I heard you prep that. <laughs> <laughs> All right.